Welcome to the first Dialogue and Debate webinar from Cumberland Lodge. I'm joined here in the studio by Dr Rowan Williams, Master of Magdalen College, Cambridge, former Archbishop of Canterbury and visiting fellow here at Cumberland Lodge. And also by Sophie Dean, founder and chief executive of the children's digital company, Bright Little Labs. Sophie was one of the speakers at our recent conference here on digital inclusion, bridging divides. Thank you very much, both of you, for being here uh, today. And uh, not only for being here, but also for launching this webinar series. This is the first webinar from Cumberland Lodge. So uh, we hope the technology works. Um, just a couple of announcements to make about it for those that are, are watching on the internet. Um, if you've got a question that you'd like to ask, then you can submit a question um, and uh, that you can do that through, through Vimeo. But also, there's a poll that's taking place and the poll is, would you value more time in your life for deep reflection on pressing issues facing society? Yes or no? Would you value more time in your life for deep reflection on pressing issues facing society? Yes or no? So if you want to take part in that poll, then we'll announce the result at the end and get our panellists just to uh, reflect on the answers. So the first question really is about attention spans, because according to recent research, the average British person has an attention span of, of just 14 minutes, and even less if they're watching TV, driving, or talking about financial issues. So we'll, we'll keep off financial issues. Uh, do you think this lack of attention is a problem for society? Um, and if so, do you think we ought to be addressing this or responding to it in some way? And perhaps I might start with, with Rowan. Hmm. I think I'd like to understand a bit better what, what an attention span really is. Some things we, we learn the skills of learning more quickly. You know, as time goes on, we, we pick up things more quickly. Some things we don't. And because our bodies um, acclimatise at a certain rate, and we can't do very much about that, there are some things which our bodies learn which just take the time they take, like learning to play a musical instrument or something mm -hmm. like that. So I suppose I'm hesitant about giving a quick answer, which yeah. in a sense is an answer in itself, just because I'd like to, to understand more how those different kinds of learning work. Yeah, Sophie, you... you you work a lot with children. Do you, do you notice how attentive children can be? Um, yes, but I haven't personally noticed a change. Um, although I hear lots of studies that say... But then I always think, sort of similar but less eloquent to what you just said, like, what does that mean, attention span, and how are they measuring it? I know that like, overall people are saying that we have less of an attention span but when I'm working with kids it just depends on how engaged they are in what you're doing with them. I think that's absolutely right that um, a lot depends on the relationship you establish with a child yes. because attention span is something to do with people's commitment to the relation to the process isn't it mm. and if you're not very committed then of course the attention span isn't very substantial. Yeah. But I know there was some research done about um, ooh, 20 or 30 years ago on the fact that as time has gone on in the 20th, 21st century, um, for example, people have learned to ride the bicycle more quickly. That when people first were learning to ride bicycles, it was, it was quite difficult, it was a bit, um, a bit strange. And then gradually, culturally, it somehow became easier. And that puzzles me, and I'm fascinated by it, but it does suggest it's not just a one-way story. Yes, 
What, what does that mean? That What does it mean? One of the people who looked at it suggested it might mean that there was some kind of um, what he called resonance in human consciousness worldwide, that we just got a bit more used to certain things in the environment, almost at a, a subconscious level. What, like we've evolved to be better at it? Sort of, yes. It's a very small example of evolution. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things about, I guess, attention span is that idea of commitment. Hmm. And what I was thinking about as you were saying that was about the distractions that we now face hmm. in our lives. And perhaps the, the biggest distraction many people have in their hand is a, is a mobile, mobile phone. And uh, I know that over Christmas the Pope was, was, was recommending that people even stop uh, using their mobile phones during Mass. It didn't even occur to me that people would be checking their email, but clearly, clearly they, they do. Do you think that that, that sort of distraction is, is, is problematic? Um, I, <laughs> I, yes, I think so. And I, just speaking from my own experience, I have got an addictive tendency towards my own phone, even though I don't want to and I'm sort of conscious of it. I find myself picking it up and then putting it down again and thinking, why am I, why am I doing this mindless stuff with my phone? Why aren't I present in this moment? Um, and I think that that's everywhere around me and that we have to uh, make an effort to safeguard ourselves from it because the... Um, the people making the software are motivated to keep us using the software. So there's been like a huge wave of um, looking into what's going to keep you addicted and what's mm. going to give you a dopamine hit. And so I actually think that we need to consciously fight that because it's happening at a level which we might not be aware of, and that then the trend might change and we, the, the companies might behave differently towards how they build stuff. Mm. I think it's very important to be reminded like that of the fact that this isn't just a a neutral process. There are there yeah. are people marketing this kind of attention span to us, in a sense, marketing the addictive substance, which is mm. that constant reassurance that I'm part of something. Yeah. And what worries me a bit is that need for reassurance. We need somehow to tap into this to make sure we're still connected, we're still there, we're still part of things. And maybe there are just other ways of reassuring yourself that you're real. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we build an identity outside of ourselves and then we need constant gratification, which is not good. So how do you, how do you deal with this slightly addictive tendency to... Me personally? Yeah. Um, I've set timers on my phone, so like, I don't like social media for me, I'm like, not for anyone else. Um, so, so my social media will shut down after two minutes and that's it. Like, and then I won't... It literally closes it on my phone and I won't reopen it. Um, and I try and do stuff like when I'm with people that I love or whatever to say, let's put our phones to one side. Um, I use a timer when I'm working that's like a, I'll work for 20 minutes and then I'll pause for five minutes. I try and be quite conscious, but every day I like start the day with good intentions and then I lose the battle by the end of the day. And so it's a regular battle for me. Mm. It's a matter of things being good servants and bad masters, isn't it? And when, when the thing is mastering you, yes. that's, that's the problem. <laughs> But yes, although I, I don't, this is a terrible confession, but I don't normally carry a mobile. It's good. Um, and the more time goes on, the more inconvenient that is in some ways, but the more I feel it's quite important to dig my heels in. I don't, therefore, um, give myself the opportunity of checking in. And as I say, this can be a real nuisance to some other people as well as to myself at times, but I 
do feel I need to, to work at being in the moment, as you say, and not, um, not give myself too many escape routes. Mm. Was that conscious that you... It was mostly um, sheer technological ineptitude okay. to start with. But then, of course, I made a moral principle out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think this, this awareness of needing to be in the moment might, might be behind the great sort of move to, to mindfulness and trying to get people to, mm. to be present in the, in the moment? Do you think that's, that's part of it? Oh, I'm sure that's right, yes. And it's intriguing just how much mindfulness sort of keys into where, where people are. But it sometimes feels as if it, it's a bit like you know, courses on how to boil an egg. It's something which ought to come naturally to us. Yeah. And yet somehow we need to be taught how to be natural. Yeah. That, that natural you know, breathing and sitting and just sensing where and what we are. Um, how strange that we've come to the point where we have to relearn that all over again. Yeah. And use an app. On our mobile phone to, yes, to have yes. it. I use an app. Yeah. But yes, you can imagine, you know, 30 years down the line, an app to remind you to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I think that, I think there's a gap in between, I think that society and the way that we live, well, the way that I, people live around me and I live, um, gives us a lack of identity mm -hmm. and um, that values aren't, we're not living in a way that makes us happy and mm. I think that causes unhappiness and depression and then yeah. people get to a point where they're like oh gosh I need to do something about this mm. and then they go to mindfulness or so I think that there's a bit in between mindfulness and being addicted to tech which is unhappiness. Mm. Mm. Yes and that need for reassurance that we were talking about a bit earlier to just yeah. you know, assure ourselves we're, we're still here. Yes. We have a question that's come oh, in sorry. and the question is um, one thing I find interesting about the addiction to phones is that lots of people, whoops, and the message just vanished, is that lots of people uh, send a photo to prove they've received a gift, not thanks. So sending a photo, that's, that's an intriguing, do you, do you send photos? Yes, and I receive them. Um, and I particularly enjoy it when it's of the kids like I got a, a video this morning of my niece reading a book I bought her yesterday for her birthday, which I loved. Mm. So I think it's the intention behind it, I guess, for me, yeah. Yes, because it comes down to relationship again, doesn't it? Yeah. Sending a photo can sometimes be a very effective way of affirming a relationship in a, in a perfectly good and sane way. Yeah. yeah. There are different ways of saying thanks, there always have been. Yeah. And then, well, the, the, having, Mobile technology has revolutionised taking photos and um, almost, again, almost obsessively people are taking selfies and, um, and wanting to record being somewhere by taking a photo of it. Um, do you think this is probably one of those things where it's, it, there are good and bad dimensions to it, but um, just trying to walk across Waterloo Bridge in London is... Uh, you're just trying to navigate your way through all the, all the selfies taking place. Oh, tell me about it. In yeah. Cambridge, you just sort of push your way through a forest of selfie sticks in the summer. Yeah. And there's nothing particularly wicked about this. I just wonder also what that's doing though, to our, our internal memory, our, mm. the ways we tell ourselves a story about ourselves. We were talking a bit earlier about if you like, the stories that we tell ourselves, where we belong in them and how with your work with children that matters. And I'd be a bit worried if I thought that just taking photographs sort of let us off the work of remembering 
thoughtfully and creatively and telling ourselves something. Yes, and I think that you people create, it's very curated what, you, what people put online and I think that causes problems too and then you see other curated views and people compare themselves. Mm -hmm. I compare myself a lot very negatively to everything I'm seeing online. Children do it and it's causing a massive rise in children feeling insecure and feeling like they're being left out of things. Um, so I think that that's, I, I personally find all of the photos publicly uh, quite a negative part of social media. Hmm. There seems to be something about social media which almost changes the boundaries of relationships that we're willing to put things out to a wider audience that probably a generation ago we would keep very private um, and um, is that something that, that that you might want to comment on? Mm. Yes, I ask myself about the need that that shows. What is it that we're not getting from what you might call ordinary routine human relations that we somehow feel we're getting by putting this image of ourselves out there? So that often it seems to me the answer is not to start panicking about social media, but to start asking rather difficult questions about the nature of our relationships, the nature of our, our family lives, our social lives, and, and say, well, what's, what's missing that we go looking for this, mm. this particular kind of public self-presentation and, mm. and the, the audience that will keep us happy? Mm. Yeah, I really, I feel like that about the whole of technology, that while there are things at play that we need to be really aware of, um, the it's just a reflection of us as a society and mm. it can be used as a tool for whatever we want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but at the same time, I do think that the obsession with images is causing actual problems. And um, now computers are so smart that they can create images that are, they can create images themselves and it's impossible for a human eye to identify what's real and what's not real. Mm. And that's another level of issue with sort of like so much images around us that may not even be a real image. Mm. That's a huge political problem now. Isn't Massive, it? yeah. <laughs> I mean, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica is yes. like bonkers. Mm. Um, it's, it, the reach of social media to affect a massive group of people and how they think about things. Um, is something that we need to be aware of, I think, more aware of mm. than we are. Mm. I think one of the things that's coming out of this conversation is that almost the, the new technology is exposing some deep things about humanity, which have always been there, yes. but for some reason it's, it's teasing it all out. Which sort of brings me on to the next question, and it's quoting uh, the poet T.S. Eliot, and one of his poems, where there's, he's got the lines, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? We're living in an age where we're suddenly being exposed to a vast amount of, of information, and then somehow, I think, I think that what, the, the way to process it is you know, converting this into knowledge and then reflecting on it in wisdom. Um, do you see a role for, I don't know, places like Cumberland Lodge or other um, institutions or similar which actually have a sort of countercultural uh, response to the vast amount of information pushing us down to more deep thinking and reflection. I think there's an enormous role for places like this and, and networks of all sorts, not least I suppose the churches if they were doing their job and educational institutions if they were doing their job. 
because I'd love to hear Sophie about the impact of this on education. One of my worries again here is that we're often these days sold on a model of education which is very information driven, mm. which is very much about the transfer of certain bits of intellectual property from one owner to another, and at best certain skills from one practitioner to another, but doesn't have a lot to do with developing the imagination, developing what's broadly called empathy, the capacity to, to see the world from somebody else's point of view. And although I can see that standard educational institutions don't easily lend themselves just to teaching empathy all the time, mm. there's something about that instinctive, intuitive, what some people call attuned relation to the world, which we miss if it's all about information. Mm. Information is something we can we can carve up and package and own, and that's nice and clear. But what about the really important processes and learnings and decisions in our lives? What about the way in which we, we shape and develop our picture of ourselves? What about our capacity to see from another's point of view and our capacity for love at the end of the day? Um, the algorithms don't quite cut it there, I think. And how do we come out? How do we cultivate that sort of approach? How do we, I mean, think, thinking, oh, you've been in the university sector many, many years, you'll have seen changes in, mm. in higher education and... Uh, Most of them are not very pretty. Yeah, Most I, of them are driving towards the commodification of knowledge. Yeah. But, I mean, you've been working with children, so mm. you, you see this very much on the front line. I, uh, I mean, I've got quite radical views around education systems and schools. But when I, just from a more pragmatic point of view, when you think about what jobs you've, we're, what's the point of education? Um, and obviously I don't have the answer to that, but if you think it's to prepare kids for the future, then I think that this sort of um, teaching children facts and IP transfer is irrelevant because uh, the jobs of the future require us to be creative and require us to be able to think critically. And so I think that actually what people have traditionally called soft skills are becoming much more relevant in a digital age because that's how we separate ourselves from like otherwise we're slow robots basically mm -hmm. um but also when i think about wisdom it's really hard that was a really hard question because we're obviously all like really stupid because we've got all of these facts around us and the internet is meant to have opened up our um opened up our ability to find out more information. First problem with that is that only half of the people in the world are on the internet. And so we have a body of knowledge. You, a kid goes on the internet and thinks, oh, if I just look for it, it will be there. But actually half of the world's version of events isn't there. Um, and their uh, knowledge that they've built up. And we, um, we don't look underneath things like climate change. We're not wise because we know that we're ruining the environment and that that has uh, ramifications that are massive and we're not doing anything about it. Mm. Or we buy iPhones, we think they're amazing, but they're made in factories in China where people throw themselves out the window because they're under so much pressure, mm. pressure they want to commit suicide and we're queuing up for them. So it doesn't, I don't think it, I'm not sure why that's a problem, but I don't think all of this information is making us wiser. Mm. And again, that's a reminder that this is a very political question in some ways. It, it suits the powers that run the world, I'm not being conspiratorial, I just mean to know the, the people with power in the world, that a lot of people's experience does not surface. Yes. And um, 
that actually is one of the positive aspects isn't it, of social media in some contexts yes. where a voice that might otherwise have been suppressed yes. actually gets out. Yeah. But you do have to put that against the background, as you say, of a, a general situation where lots of people simply don't have that access. Yes. They don't have that voice. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that's striking me about this conversation is, is the word discipline. Um, you were talking about wisdom and the fact that we, we know things but we're not responding uh, constructively or positively enough to, to them. And Rome mm. was talking earlier on about, okay, we've got the technology but we've got to you know, not take the mobile phone with us. There's something about cultivating uh, healthy disciplines in, in life mm. which seem to me to be really important and perhaps that's takes us to a lot of the work that you do with, with, with children because what you're trying to do in your work is obviously help children deal with the digital world yes. but, but hopefully in a healthy, positive way. Yes. So um, I have a spy organisation called the Children's Intelligence Agency and the, um, we've got a curriculum but it's sort of, uh, it's spy training. But the, um, the most important thing is to question everything. Can I really believe that? And then you build above that. If you're going to be a good spy, you're going to need to understand how to stay safe online or how to um, understand what sort of like hacking is. Um, and you need to understand how to determine what's real and what's not real online and in the real world. So we use spy, we use our spy agency to develop skills, which we think are important. But also, if you're a good spy, you need to be able to not react and be very calm um, and process information and and so I do think that we all need help learning about how to navigate the world that we're in which is digital um, and yes I try to do that with kids through stories because I love stories. And that seems to me to be cultivating some of the seeds of, of, of wisdom. Certainly yes and as you say the, the way in which you might teach somebody that you don't have to react instantly that there are some things which are just going to take a bit of time to, to process, and that an immediate reaction will somehow distort the balance. Mm. That's, that's a key aspect of wisdom, isn't it? That yeah. you, you step back just a little bit from the instinctive yeah. reaction, the momentary reaction. You use both patience and imagination, I think, in that moment. Mm. And those, those two words are, to me, almost the holy grail of real education. Patience, patience and, and imagination. imagination. We'll come on to imagination in a little bit, but we've got another question that's, that's coming up. So let me, it's nearly here. So do you think lack of time in modern life is one of the main barriers to thinking deeply using bigger picture thinking? So the lack of time in modern life, is that a barrier to it? It's time to <laughs> reflect deeply. <laughs> mm. Well, of course, time isn't something like a, a real commodity, however much we treat it. So we do have a little bit of liberty about that. So it's not so much a lack of time in modern life as our own attitude mm. to time and our own sense that we've got to squeeze results out of every moment. Mm. Now, our work patterns notoriously reinforce that kind of anxiety. And that's, that's one area we ought to be challenging. Our models of education, as I think you're implying, Sophie, give us that kind of anxiety as well. Mm. So it would do us a lot of good, I think, to, <laughs> to take time and step back and see how we're using or misusing time. Mm. And say, so what is it in the culture that really puts the pressure on, that makes us think the instantaneous thing is necessary, and that makes us think that we have to have measurable 
outcomes in, sh in the short term mm -hmm. from everything that we do. What's the result? What's, you know, what's this deliver for me? Do you think we can learn something from the monastic tradition, which over centuries has looked at the balance between work and prayer, reflection, and, uh, and relaxation? There's other things that we could learn. Well, yes, I think the obvious answer is yes. Mm -hmm. And the rule of St. Benedict, all those centuries ago, sort of sixth century of our era, is essentially about the kind of balance where you, you value doing things daily, slowly, thoughtfully. And it strikes me that one of the most interesting things about the Rule of St. Benedict is that it tells you, more or less, how to do the washing up. If, if you're on the rotor to do the washing up in the kitchen in the monastery, make sure you put the pots away carefully where somebody will be able to find them. And that seems to be a, a wonderful spiritual insight. It's about <laughs> just taking the time to do the job. Don't, don't rush. Don't look for anything other than getting the job done. And there is a kind of anchorage and a, back to the word, attunement, just in that doing it, getting it done. Mm. And that just fits together in the rule of St. Benedict mm. with the rota of daily prayer. Don't expect mysticism and transports and huge spiritual insights every day. Just check in, say the Psalms, and listen to your neighbor and make this community work and put the pots away. <laughs> so again, it's a, again, it's about cultivating a, some sort of discipline and rhythm in, into life. Rhythm. rhythm. An all-important word, I think. Yes. Rhythm. Yeah. I find it super tough. I am so wanting to do everything ten times as fast, and I feel that I've got a lot of opportunity that I don't want to um, you know, not use properly. And mm. So I really struggle with it. But I come from a Jewish background. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm Jewish. And... Um, I really like, I'm not religious, but I really like the idea of the Sabbath, where mm. you, everybody turns everything off from Friday to mm. Saturday. And I think if you look at all religions, they offer those moments of reflection in your daily life, mm. and we're really missing that. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Mm. No, it seems to me one of, one of the most significant things in traditional Jewish life is this valuation of doing things carefully, the, the, the mitzvah, the commandment, doing the commandment is just doing what's there to be done. You and it has a value in itself. You know more about it than oh, I, I do. <laughs> it's always struck me as a, a really transforming insight if we, if we take it to heart. Mm. Just a quick reminder of those watching on Vimeo, if you want to take part in our poll, um, do, uh, do that, because in about uh, five or six minutes we'll be, we'll be looking at the results of the poll. But just um, before we, we do that, just one uh, final area to explore with you, but you're both very much into storytelling and the power of, of stories. And do you think um, that in our digital world, where it's so many challenges for young people in particular, that storytelling can, can play a part in, in helping us to navigate uh, through all this change and uh, opportunity? Me, yes, massively. Um, like when I look at the power that Disney stories have globally, mm. I'm, I just think, wow, if put something on Disney's agenda and you would have a whole world of kids sort of picking up on those messages. And then, I mean, I really love stories. So I was looking at one of the things that inspired me is Sesame Street, which you may know came about in the civil rights in America mm. and they wanted to give access to education to all kids. Um, 
and they got 98% of kids watching it, uh, particularly uh, black American kids and Hispanic kids, and they raised the numeracy and literacy of those kids to the same standard as going to preschool, which is $7,000 versus $5. So stories can really have a massive impact, and um, I think that the fact that kids watch screens all the time can be part of the solution, mm. not just part of the problem. Mm. No, I, I completely agree that storytelling is crucial to our, our growing up, our becoming fully human. And it's not only about telling our stories, it's about listening to the stories of others and giving them the time to talk to us and yeah. get it out there. And that's where um, that rather overused word empathy comes in again. That the sense that my way of looking at the world isn't the only possible one. My experience isn't the only possible experience. And actually I can become more rooted in my world if I'm really prepared to give attention to what's happening in your world. And mm then we create something in common which enriches both of us. And I guess that's where digital technology can have a really positive impact. We're yes. just think, yes. thinking of a project that I'm aware of which has been linking uh, schools uh, in refugee camps with, with schools in this country yes. and they can tell mm -hmm. each other's story and, and try to build up some empathy. Absolutely. There was a church school in the diocese I used to work in in Wales which had exactly that sort of scheme where the children would exchange their, their stories a school in South Wales and a school in the Middle East. So there's plenty of positives to there's take. Loads of, there's loads yeah. of cool mm. stuff about mm. tech. Yeah. I don't know if you want me to talk about it, but I could. Yes, <laughs> go, go for it, yes. Oh, uh, okay, cool stuff about tech. Um, <laughs> reducing waste, so there's lots of um, schemes that can distribute food waste uh, and the algorithms know where yeah. it is. Drones that can deliver medicine into very hard to reach places, like mapping um, areas after disasters or even before disasters. I mean, there's l I really love technology. Yeah. It's just people that are a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of our scholars here at Cumberland Lodge been involved in a project of repairing um, broken medical equipment in, uh, in developing countries by using 3D printing. So if they can get that, they can find the component made in America or somewhere mm. and, and send the instructions to a digital 3D, so it's a 3D printer in that country, then they can fix it. And it's just wonderful that these cool. things can be done. Well, you can 3D print prosthetics in war zones, mm. which is much cheaper than buying them. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There are loads of cool um, things that technology helps us with. Yeah. But we need the wisdom to make positive... We need the wisdom, we need the imagination, we need the big story, you yeah. might say. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing. We were talking about politics a bit earlier. And somebody pointed out a few years ago when, when the referendum was happening, that one side had a better story than the other. And the word had something to do with the fact that one story sounded more exciting than mm. the other. It wasn't about the facts, it was about mm. the story. Mm -hmm. And how you found yourself in that story and saw yourself as contributing to something that was creative and made a difference. And in that particular debate, it seemed that the, the leave side of the story had the, had the better drama almost. Now, that, you, whatever you may think of the outcome, <laughs> um, that's an interesting insight because it yeah. suggests that we can't win political arguments just by bombarding people with facts. We have to have a compelling, emotionally involving, imaginatively exciting Story. version of what's possible. But also those stories, because actually Brexit is, well, for me, it's so complicated. Like I can't <laughs> figure it out. And so that's where stories become useful. It's trying to um, help us digest information. Mm. And I think that's why it was 
that I think Brexit was which story was better. Yeah. But it was mis, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's also something to do with making a large complex issue personal and local. Yeah. I'm thinking of work we used to do in, um, in Kent when I was Archbishop of Canterbury around um, refugee and migrant issues. A little group of young people who go out into schools to do dramas and presentations about the actual experience of individual migrants. And attitudes would really shift. You'd start by asking a class, so what do you think about migrants? There'd be the sort of parental and domestic views, often rather uh, prejudiced about this. They'd tell the stories, they'd do the dramas, and it all felt a bit different. Mm. Yeah. So the degree of creativity, so we're thinking some of the key things coming out of a discussion. One is about discipline, another about creative, imaginative uh, approaches, the power of storytelling mm. to, to turn information and knowledge into something more compelling. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think we're getting some, some really in, important things out of this discussion. Just a reminder, if you're uh, on Vimeo, the, your last opportunity now for any questions. Um, and before we wrap up, just to, going quite personal, I know you've already been quite personal, Sophie, about your approaches, but just the sheer volume of information, how do you just cope, cope with it or do you, sense of being overwhelmed by, by it all, or um, are there ways that you can feel comfortable in this sort of world of information and uh, uh, that, that's, that's saturating us? Mm. My starting point is always, I don't really believe things. Like, I think I've been taught just don't believe things. And so I've always been very, um, I don't believe what I'm reading or what I'm seeing. Um, so that helps me manage information if you just sort of blankly think it probably you probably need to understand your own unconscious biases and who wrote it and why did they write it and blah 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 but also i try and limit um i listen to two minutes of the news every morning through alexa which i love so she'll tell me the news and then that's it and unless i proactively go to find information i try to limit the amount of information coming at me Mm. um and so yeah i'm I prefer to, I love it when I'm proactive, but I don't want mm-hmm. to have messages at me all the time. Did that come to you naturally, or was, did you, you just feel, I've got to do something to address this sense of being, of overload? Slightly naturally, but then, like, I don't know, like eight years ago I went to Laos, um, and I felt super relaxed there, mm. and I couldn't understand it. It was part of a big uh, trip I took. And then I realised I hadn't seen an advert <laughs> for like four days, nowhere. <laughs> like no billboards, no nothing, and I really started to feel that it does make my mind, I am, I feel better when I'm not bombarded, so yes, it's been conscious, but quite natural. (laughs) Rowan, as a public fee, you must get, I mean, you could be completely saturated by by everything. How do you, how do you cope with that? I suppose by trying to decide what I, what I actually want to know about, Mm. and to be proactive, as you say. So, um, like you, I'll, I'll check in basic news headlines first thing in the morning, and decide what, if anything, I want to follow up, rather than just um, soak. Mm. And and also trying, as I think you've said, to read news reports with a little bit of a question at the back of my mind. So what would be another way of telling that story? And because here is a story that is steering me very firmly towards a conclusion. Mm. Well, let's just press pause and think how else you might tell that story and whether that conclusion is the one that comes out of it. Mm. We have the result of our poll. So 80% of those uh, joining us through the internet uh, say uh, yes, they would uh, value 
more time in life for deep reflection on pressing issues facing society. 20% uh, of you don't feel the need. Does that result surprise you? Not in the least, <laughs> you know, anecdotally, from what I hear from my colleagues, my, my children and their friends, and pretty well everybody. That's reassuring that we can keep coming on lodging business, if nothing can. Yeah, we can, yes. <laughs> and um, is there any final message you'd like to, to, to send out to, to those joining us through the internet? I think the one thing I'd, I'd really like to say is, to me it's important that we remember knowledge has to do with relation at the end of the day, not simply the acquisition of things. It is about finding your way, just as when you're learning to walk, you find your way around a room, you learn to grow up, you find your way around people. But it's, it's that relation at the base of it all, not just stuffing things into a bag facts and skills, but becoming more human. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to go with the motto of the My Spy Agency, which is to question everything and just to see the world around you as quite largely constructed and you can choose, you should take a moment to choose how you want to be in it, I think. Thank you. It's not as good as yours. There we are. Both wise <laughs> words. Both wise words. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for for being with us and thank you so much for getting this seminar series off to uh, such a, a good uh, start and for those of you who want to find out more about the work of Cumberland Lodge you can do so at our website cumberlandlodge.ac.uk and this webinar will be available to watch on demand on our website and our Vimeo channel so please let other people know who might be interested and we do hope that you'll join us for our next monthly webinar on Wednesday the 5th of February at 11am when we're exploring creative approaches to achieving interfaith harmony. Just a small topic to deal with. And as our next webinar will be pre-recorded during our Freedom of Religion or Belief in Action retreat that's taking place later this month, rather than it's not going to, so the webinar's not going out live, please let us know if you have any questions you'd like to ask uh, our guests in advance and you can email them to uh, program team at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk so and you can find all, all this uh, again on our website so thank you who those who've joined us uh, by the internet thank you very much indeed and we look forward to uh, next month's webinar thank you <laughs>